Hi everyone, I'm Kristen Stammer. Thank you very much for joining us today and really hope you're all doing okay. We're really excited to be back with McKinsey and Company who presented last year with us a number of webinars on consumer sector topics. I'll come back and reintroduce Thomas in a moment. So today we're kicking off the Corporate Governance Symposium series. This is a great event held each year. Christina Tran and Aoife Zureb from our disputes team organise this client seminar each year. And the focus this year are what are some of the major issues that consumer facing businesses are going through and will have in the future. Our first session today is all around consumer strategy, deals and data. The other two sessions are also going to be very interesting. In the second session, our competition and privacy data teams will speak on the increased interest in the overlap between data and privacy and disclosure, and really the recent activity by the ACCC in this area. That will be held on Thursday, 19 August. In the final session, our disputes team will explore class action risks for consumer facing businesses. And that's particularly topical given the last 12 months in the Australian class action scene. That will be held on Thursday, 26 August. So back to today, welcome to Thomas Rudiger-Smith, who's a consumer sector associate partner at McKinsey. Thomas will lead the session today and cover corporate strategy, the M&A story from COVID and implications going forward. Our second speaker, Malika Chandrasagaran, is an M&A partner. Malika will speak on a number of topics, including what's driving M&A for both sellers and buyers and how data is driving some of these deals. Peter Jones, one of our TMT partners, will speak on what he is seeing in data, including the impact of trends in data regulation. There's a chat function, so please say hi and include any questions you have. If we have time, we'll cover them at the end, as many as we can. And if not, we'll aim to come back to you on your question online. Thomas, over to you. Thanks so much. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Crispin, and, and delighted to be here again. Um, really enjoyed it last year. And what we thought we would, what I thought I would do today is actually tell a couple of different stories of what we saw in um, it, during COVID, and, and we look back at the last year. And, and I wouldn't be a proper consultant without without having a few slides. So we'll try and try and share a bit of bit of uh, a couple of different stories. And the three stories that I think are really important to understand um, when we start talking a bit about M and A's. One is if we just take a massive step back and look at the global picture from the capital market, it actually reels a number of very interesting interesting trends coming out of COVID. Secondly, it's also really important to understand what's happening in the mind of the consumer and therefore what's likely to stake. And then lastly, that of course leads to some of the ones who might not be on, on, on top of the ranks from a capital market perspective. How are they acting and how are we seeing M&A unfold um, as part of COVID? And what does that therefore mean? So I won't try and, and spend tons of time here, but I think there's a few few key insights that you might find interesting. So when we looked last year um, at kind of like who performed really well versus, you know, in the past, what we saw very, very clearly is, you know, actually for most of the 
kind of the B2B or B2C facing companies. Actually, it wasn't necessarily a year that was significantly different from the past in terms of their capital market performance. But one of the things we absolutely saw is some companies started, you know, absolutely running ahead of the rest of them. So what we saw was, for example, 25 companies that we classified as the mega 25 start to just outperform and really fundamentally shape global business, not just in consumer, but also more broadly. But a number of those actually are consumer companies or have a very strong consumer facing um, aspect. And they actually, they basically took 35% of all the value gain we saw from February, 2020 to April, um, end of April, 2021. And some of the names up there are not necessarily surprising. Amazon, Apple, Google, uh, under the skies of Alphabet, Microsoft, Facebook, but also a very, very strong presence from Chinese players such as Pandoro, Meituan, um, and so forth that actually really helped shape and, and change kind of what's happening in, in the in the space of, of B2C. And some of the learnings from these businesses combined with what we saw specifically on retail is actually really important to understand where do we think B2C companies will be heading with their strategic kind of intent and corporate strategy over the coming years and how M&A is a really key lever. M&A or partnership or alliances are really key lever to, to kind of go after some of these areas. When we looked at retail, this is just focusing a bit more on retail, but you know the story is very much the same when we start thinking a bit more around some other consumer sectors is retail performed pretty well. So most B2C services and B2C you know, um, um, industries actually performed fairly well last year um, due to kind of very much the you know, stay at home, we were spending more, we didn't, there were certain things we couldn't spend and, and kind of afford them uh, amongst, amongst many reasons, but we actually saw retail perform quite well. But when we then look at retail from a global level, and this is based on our kind of definition of the retail index. So we take all of the retail companies as part of the largest 5,000 companies in the world from a, from a market cap perspective. The ones that started that really, really dominated the growth, of course, there was a huge shift in online. Amazon captured 42% of all of kind of the retail market cap growth that we saw last year. But when we then look more broadly and say, what actually happens with marketplaces? So stuff like, you know, Chinese platforms like Pindodo, Meituan, um, you know, and, and a whole range of other online players actually also contributed about one, one third. And then the last third comes much more to like the value and, and the home economy um, with DIY players like Bunnings in Australia, Home Depot and so forth in, in the US. But what's really, really interesting and why this matters to understand why is Amazon capturing so much value and what's the story behind some of the Chinese players like Alibaba, Pindodo, Meituan, and some of the other platforms that are really capturing values. They're platforms. They're not traditional B2C companies. They're ecosystems. A lot of these players, you know, we debated for a long time, is Amazon a retailer or, well, they also have AWS and they have a huge logistics arm. So, and also the same if we look to some of the players in, in Asia, if we look to players in South America, the ones that are winning and the ones that are changing the game from a B2C perspective, are fundamentally speaking ecosystems and platform players. So their economics are very different from a traditional retailer, from a traditional consumer company, and their expandability is entirely different. But a lot of that means that there's way more players around them that generate that value for the consumer, which gets to the point of, this is so important when you start thinking ahead of, what am I doing from an M&A and an alliance and a partnership strategy to get myself in a position to either be part part of a larger ecosystem or to build an ecosystem and the platform and kind of a whole range of kind of 
broader relationships around my business, not just B2C, but also how do I start engaging with B2B and finding additional value tools? And that's what the companies that came out most successful from COVID from a capital market perspective had tr have truly done. That's the, the, the direction they've gone to. At the same time, one want to also, of course, share a bit around what did we see from a consumer perspective and with these ecosystems that are online and, you know, yes, they benefited during COVID, but will they actually stick? And I think our firm belief is what we saw during COVID is a fundamental impact to the everyday mindset. We saw a significant impact in terms of how consumers were starting to live their lives. They, you know, this year is very Australia specific, but what we saw is we stopped planning for, you know, five, six, seven years ahead, but actually started focusing much more on the here and now. How do we live our lives and how do we enrich our here and now? And that's where a lot of the companies, whether it's Amazon, whether that's, you know, other platforms really play into kind of that instant, instant gratification and satisfaction and really help consumers like, you know, much more focus on, on what's happening today rather than planning for what needs to happen in five years time. We also saw that people started taking much more control of their lives. So they actually started, you know, actively resetting lifestyle and habits. And that's consistent across the globe, but people actually had a chance to think. And some of those things are playing out. People are changing careers, people moving out to the countryside, moving away from the big city, or, you know, actually just making a, a bolder choice around what do I really want and what do I will not want in, in my lives. And that therefore played through in kind of the reason why we see, for example, value performing so well during COVID is because a lot of consumers decided to shift much more towards value than they had in the past. People also started spending more time, more money on premium stuff. So you know, we see some of the big, big fashion houses and fashion conglomerates like LVMH and Richemont perform extremely well over the during COVID because consumers in general kind of became much more focused on what are the things that are buy to excite like bring excitement to myself but also where will i really cut into the bone and, and where will i where will i penny pinch and a lot of that of course happened online as, as we were we were locked down and, and what we're starting to see is really that online behavior was is absolutely sticking but the, the fundamental question like that's great you know we we're all in lockdown you know we all kind of forced to change our lives we didn't have vaccines and all of that stuff well you know what will actually stick and what does that therefore mean in terms of you know whether or not I want to continue to to invest it in 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 the belief that the strategy that worked during COVID will actually stick going forward? And and our fundamental belief is what will stick comes down to three things. It comes down to absolutely did the consumer value the experience? Did they enjoy what happened over the course of COVID? Did the way that they changed their life materially enrich their lives? Like I think homeschooling for many was not an enrichment of their lives. We all kind of you know, found it relatively challenging to have the homeschool whilst working, working, um, working full time. So of course that was not necessarily a positive experience for a consumer. But all of a sudden, you know, saving the time and energy and having to go to the grocery store or you know discretionary purchases that was actually just easier done online that became quite a positive experience for a lot of consumers. And that's why you know from a consumer perspective, we believe that'll stick. But it has to also answer the other two sides of the question, which is, will the industry continue to invest in it? So how is the industry investing in the right partnership, supply chain, you know, fulfillment, if we talk about online and so forth, to kind of make some of those new behaviors stick? And of course, you know, some of those behaviors that consumers switch to are not always economically um, attractive for, for the industry. So there is a bit of a tension there in terms of what the industry actually really want to encourage and what consumers want. 
And then lastly, the question comes, you know, is the government supportive of it? Well, how is the government across the world basically investing, for example, digital, you know, um, incentivizing local businesses when it comes to local versus global and so forth. So, but that trifactor is really what will help determine what will stick. And that's why, for example, we think stuff like online will stick because we've seen massive amounts of investments in it, consumers really enjoying it. But of course, you know, you can layer over many other changes such as homeschooling um, and so forth and, and, and pretty quickly figure out that some of those probably won't, won't stick to the same extent. So boiling all of that down into then what's the M&A story and what do we think about M&A coming, coming from COVID and, and coming out of it? Well, the, the thing that we found very interesting is when we look at, at what companies and this kind of executives from a 71 executives, what do they think about M&A and, and their stance on M&A given kind of what's happening in the market? And we very much saw that it was either maintaining or increasing M&A activity. That was on, on the menu. It was not a decrease. And what became quite interesting is that, of course, the and not unexpectedly, a lot of the M&A activity became much more focused on digital, became much more focused on technology and on gaining access to new capabilities such as you know, big data, analytics, and, and, and capabilities that they just didn't have to the same extent beforehand. Sorry. Um, and, and but you know when we look at it in comparison to like the, the history of the world, we actually don't necessarily see that COVID so far has led to a huge drop. However, when we look historically and compare it to the Great Recession or whatever the GFC, we did find that the MA activity coming out of a recession, if we end up in such a world, actually dipped a little bit. However, when we think about countries such as you know Australia and, and other parts of the world, yes, we've seen a GDP dip, but we've also seen more investment than in, in terms of like stimulus than, than probably anywhere else. And there's a lot of free flowing money, which wasn't necessarily kind of to the same extent uh, the issue during during the GFC. So when we then look at, and this here is kind of our, our ongoing tracker of what's happening in, in the world of deals, we're actually seeing slight decline, but only so slightly in terms of what's happening across kind of um, across deals and, and, um, and the deal activity within M&A. So for example, within consumer goods, you know, the last 12 months is only slightly depressed in terms of the number of deals and, and the same kind of with, with food, drug, food and, and drugs. It's kind of dipped a bit during 2020, but we are starting to see a real kind of um, reinvestment and, and focus. But from a value perspective, we've, we've seen a slight decline again as well um, uh, across the board. So again, not a huge shift from, from, from what we're seeing in terms of the number of deals. But what we are seeing is that um, I'll skip this, but is that actually a lot of the investments that are happening are, are quite different than they used to be. We used to see a lot of investment coming around. How do I consolidate my portfolio, gain exposure to China, Asia Pacific, which by the way, is still incredibly important because going back to the, the capital market story, there's a lot of value coming out of China and, and a lot of the, the growth in the capital market did come out from Chinese companies. But what we're starting to see is a lot more in investment and focus from an AMA activity in terms of really, you know, picking up challenger brands, investing in data and tech, and also getting kind of much closer to consumers, which typically gets into a question around data or access through partnerships in order to kind of really avoid being disintermediated. So the activity is there and the activity kind of continues to be there, but the nature of the activity is shifting quite significantly. 
So what does that mean and, and what do we think are the implications for kind of M&A going forward? Well, three things. One, we think, and, and this is one we talk to our clients, consumer clients, right? How should they be thinking about M&A and, and, and consumer M&A priorities? So we think there's a fantastic opportunity at the moment to really start to refresh portfolio strategies. Um, we do believe that CPG companies and retailers and the kind of any B2C company has an opportune time to not only shed assets that they don't want, but really start thinking about what are the new kind of capabilities and, and trends that I should really start investing behind. And some of that is yes about trends such as health and wellness, you know, stay at home and so forth. But really, as I said before, how do you start investing much more in getting close to customers, avoid disintermediation, avoid wholesalers disintermediating you or, or basically the ecosystems disintermediating you because they have the data, they have the customer relationship. So how do you start actually building a direct bridge with, with some of your customers? And then of course, how do you really start um, investing much more in the data and, uh, and tech capabilities? But in order to unlock that, also just requires taking a slightly different view to M&A than we probably have in the past. It requires building much more of a programmatic M&A capability where you really have that you know, field search lens to it where you kind of run around and really try and figure out what are the new things that are coming up within my industry? How is my industry changing? Because it's changing at an accelerated pace. And then lastly, kind of how do you become more creative in terms of, sort of the deal making? How do I think much more around the end game, around ecosystems, have that as my consideration? And therefore, what's the role of joint ventures or alliances instead of kind of traditional ownership or, or, or full-on equity stake in, in, in smaller companies? So for me, that's the there's a lot of kind of things that even though deal level is again at the same, the nature of how we do MMA is likely to change as a consequence of COVID. Um, because of the trends we saw coming out of, of the of both the capital market and the winners, and there's some big guys up there that that are that are absolutely shaping the game within kind of B2C uh, B2C themes. The last thing I'd just say is is we're not out of the woods yet, and I think all of this stuff is again, you know, we're in lockdown in Sydney, um, lockdown across most of Australia, and and in and out of lockdown continues to be the case, right? So. What we've seen is, is in many respects that we don't yet know what actually like, is gonna happen. So we're still a bit in, in a world of scenarios, right? But what we do know is that COVID has accelerated trends that we saw before COVID, right? So the role of Amazon, the role of eBay, Alibaba, all of that stuff, that more, is not a new thing. We saw that prior to COVID. However, what we have seen coming out is a different consumer behaviors and different focus from an industry and also to a certain extent from a government perspective in terms of where do we want to invest and what are the capabilities we want to have for the future. And the ones that have been able to capitalize on that are the big companies that already had, you know, the tailwinds coming into COVID, Amazon and so on and so forth, right? Yet we don't really know whether or not that's going to continue to, to stay around that way. We don't know if we're going to end up in a big recession. We don't yet fully know how we're going to pay off the the bills that we've racked up during COVID. So there's a lot of uncertainty and that's why, you know, also thinking in a different way around your strategy can be quite helpful. Um, but but the really important thing is that there is a significant opportunity to make some bold moves and that really comes through, how do I start making bold moves around M&A, you know, um, joint ventures and alliances to kind of fundamentally shift um, my strategic momentum, especially if, if COVID has not been um, the, best, the best kind of year um, uh, for, for the business. 
So those were just a few thoughts in terms of what we're seeing from a capital market perspective, how that interlinks with the consumer and actually how it starts impacting M&A and, and M&A strategy from our perspective. I'll pass back to you, Kristen. Thanks so much, Thomas. Really interesting, and and really we might come back to at the end some um, you know more comments around the alliances and and where that's heading. Um, Malika, um, would love to hear from you on what what you're seeing in M and A for consumer facing businesses. Thanks, Malika. Thanks, Kristen, um, and thanks also, Thomas, for those really um, interesting insights. I'm going to touch on. Some of the drivers that we are seeing um, in M&A for consumer-facing businesses and how that's feeding into the trends and the issues we're seeing in executing transactions in the space at the moment. Now, a lot of the drivers for M&A consistent with the findings that were outlined by Thomas, you know, disruptive trends such as changing consumer preferences and technological innovations, they continue to drive M&A in the sector. And what we're seeing again to Thomas's point is that the pandemic has accelerated some of these trends and so specific drivers we're seeing you know you've got traditional bricks and mortar um, customer facing businesses are building scale in order to compete with online competitors and you know that's been happening for a while but we're seeing um, companies look for adjacent investment opportunities and expanding capabilities so for example adding online channels um, you know, you have um, probably 2019 West Farmers um, acquiring catch, for example. Um, and, you know, another theme that was outlined by Thomas is companies looking for data analysis, you know, sort of data companies in order to understand sort of customers and using the data and AI to better understand customer behaviour and using that, integrating it with their businesses. Um, you know, you've got Woolworths increasing its stake in Quantum and continuing to do so. Um, we're seeing businesses um, look at diversifying supply chain um, and try, in some cases, bringing some of that capability in-house where possible or same with logistics, you know, and looking at how do we invest in that, um, particularly in areas that might have been stressed, you know, the pandemic has sort of shown that there might be weaknesses or it's good to shore up some of that. So we're looking, you know, we're saying businesses look at M&A to um, solve some of those problems. Um, then of course, on the sell side, you've got um, businesses looking to divest, looking to change focus um, due to changing customer preferences or looking to spend capital in different places. Now, what do all of these drivers mean in terms of the transactions that we're seeing and you know the things that people are focusing on? So I'll start with, from a due diligence perspective, um, where M&A is being driven by expanding capabilities or investing in adjacent businesses, DD becomes even more important, you know, in understanding a business that might not be the same as your own business. Um, and acquirers might have a little bit less knowledge in terms of those new business models or what the business they're acquiring, you know, what are the pain points, what are the important issues. Um, and we're certainly seeing that come through in the change in DD focus. So, you know, buyers are focused on understanding regulatory frameworks and compliance. Um, we're all hearing a lot about compliance and sort of regulation and regulators becoming a lot more focused. We're hearing that across um, the spectrum of things that we're doing and that's certainly playing into DD um, and that plays into um, data and businesses that are looking to acquire, you know, targets that either have or store a lot of data or manipulate data or use data. Um, you know, and Peter will talk a little bit more around the regulation on data, but that is a big area of focus for diligence and understanding how is the target actually dealing 
with these issues? You know, what kind of risk mitigation strategies have they got in place? What kind of compliance history have they got? You know, what's the culture in relation to compliance? Um, and some of those are not easy questions and we're seeing a lot more time being spent on regulatory compliance, you know, other areas like payroll compliance um, and yeah, sort of um, other aspects are still sort of front of mind as well and a lot of DD processes. The other area, and again, this is a topic we hear about a lot, is around, you know, environmental, social and governance considerations. You know, we've been hearing about the rise of ESG and customer facing businesses, both from a consumer perspective, but also from a regulatory perspective. Now those issues, I'd say, present both risks, but also opportunities, you know, in terms of businesses that have a really great ESG um, outlook and way of managing ESG issues, that can be a real opportunity um, in what, you know, in acquisitions and in sort of um, adding strength to your current business. Now that again is becoming an integral part of the DD process. Um, and we, we get our sort of um, dedicated ESG team early onto transactions because it's really a new area of focus and we're looking at innovative ways to really test this area. I mean, it's something that we're finding buyers very, very focused on. Um, you know, for example, whether it's understanding modern slavery compliance in supply chains or understanding more about organisational culture and risk mitigation, um, you know, and seeing how businesses can cope with changing circumstances and how they've coped over the um, pandemic and how they've responded to that. Some of those are sort of softer issues, but we are finding that those softer issues, people are wanting to test that a lot more um, in DD processes. And really the takeaway from that is that DD is becoming even more thorough um, and sort of having a shifting focus um, on transactions that we're doing. Um, there's the other area that we're seeing um, some of these have an impact is on valuations. You know, um, the pandemic has had an impact on valuations, both in terms of businesses that are facing challenges. You know, are they short term? Are they longer term? How do you price that in? Um, but also, um, you know, in industries where there've been tailwinds and there's strong premiums. So there's certainly a valuation impact and what that plays out into in terms of deal negotiations is how do we mitigate some of these risks what other risk sharing structures, you know, we can put in place. So we think a little bit more of use around deferred consideration or um, earnouts, you know, that depend on future performance of the business. And to Thomas's point, you know, thinking creatively around, should we try before we buy? Do we go into a joint venture? Should we start with, you know, a smaller stake, build that stake up? Should we have alliances or partnerships? And just looking at different ways to build capability in order to mitigate against um, you know, some of the unknown and also mitigate against the lack of maybe high quality assets that everyone's vying for in certain areas. Um, other um, trends we're seeing, you know, and this has again been a feature for a while in terms of sellers wanting a clean exit, the use of WNI insurance, front-end indemnity insurance continues to be popular and growing in popularity and moving beyond kind of the traditional PE space and been used a bit more broadly. Now there continue to be challenges in getting insurers comfortable and particularly around data and data compliance and warranties around that. You know, that's a real um, area of challenge and insurers just like buyers are looking at understanding what's the compliance history been and, you know, working out whether or not they can take on that risk. Um, 
and you know, I think that that all plays into in terms of sellers wanting a clean exit, and at the same time, buyers wanting sellers to remain involved and you know continue with the relationship. There's a little bit of a tension in that space. And WNI insurance is often um, a really great way to deal with those issues. So you can you know not have to see your business partner, um, and you know navigating th those issues are important. Uh, probably the last point I'll touch on just in terms of what we're seeing is just on foreign investment. Um, so our, as many of you would know, our fur regime went through a little bit of an overhaul at the start of the year with new changes coming in focused on national security. Um, now what's that got to do with customer facing businesses? Um, it's amazing just how broad reaching some of this can be and in particular data is firmly on the agenda as a um, national security asset. So <clears throat> on one spectrum, you've got, you know, data that's subject to security clearances and the data that you might think of as being sort of of national security. But also what's really important and what we're finding affects a lot of M&A in the, um, you know, customer facing businesses is bulk set data. So, you know, where businesses have access to data of individuals and in, there's a voluntary notification regime, for example, you know, the government encourages people to notify, for example, where there's, you know, you've got access to more than 100,000 um, sets of data or where there's sensitive information. Um, and, you know, that can be quite broad ranging. And the reason that's important is just how that plays into the deal timeline and thinking about transactions. Um, FERB is looking and the government is looking to protect how that data is used. So we're finding a lot of conditions on transactions, whether that's around how the data is stored, you know, maintaining that data in Australia, compliance with privacy, um, really driving compliance and protection of that data into the process. Um, and that's important from a timeline perspective as well in doing transactions and ensuring you're getting ahead of that and starting early um, and engaging with FERB early where that's required in order to have, sort of have a smooth deal timeframe. So I think, you know, just in summary, I think that a lot of the drivers of M&A in the customer facing businesses, a lot of the drivers are similar but accelerated with a slight different focus. There are new nuances in the diligence process and focus on that. Um, and in light of increased regulation, including on FERB, I think it's important in assessing deal timelines and getting in early to um, you know, ensure that that fits within transaction timelines. Might I might stop there, Kristen? Thanks so much, Malika. Really interesting, um, and I know um, PJ is working with you on quite a few of those matters at the moment. Um, so it's probably a good segue to hand over to Peter, and just sort of be great to hear, Peter. You know what you're seeing, both data and deals from your perspective as a technology partner, and also um, you know the impact of the um, increasing regulation in this space, where, where you think that's heading, and, and the impact on on businesses operating in this space. Thanks, Peter. Yeah, thanks very much, Kristen, and thanks, Malika and Thomas. And look, I mean, I think it's probably Jones's law of deals where basically data deals lead to more data deals that lead to more data deals because there's this, like the property market in Sydney, actually, there's a fear of missing out. Um, and, and certainly the experience that we've had recently in terms of deal flow has been particularly strong. And uh, one example we've recently acted on is in relation to a digital ad marketing company. So it's effectively a back office support to consumer facing businesses. 
Um, that deals to pick up some Thomas's comments. There's clearly a platform element there that was a part of a, uh, from the acquirer's perspective, part of a search function. So they'd gone out globally and looked at where they were weak in capability and identified this as a great target. Uh, it had significant data issues. It absolutely had the FERB issue that Malika referred to before around the mass data set requirement and having to navigate ourselves through a FERB voluntary notification. So a really good example of a transaction that sort of touches on all of those areas. Uh, and also when we look at the due diligence and then the W&I insurance, and I would agree with Malika that in the area of W&I, uh, data protection, privacy, um, particularly outside of probably the Australian dynamic, if you're looking at it being a primarily an Australian target. So if you're talking about GDPR or CCPA in the US, or the, sorry, the California Consumer Privacy Act, there'll often just be blanket restrictions or exclusions on cover and touching any of those particular areas. So there are interesting challenges when it comes to looking at putting in place an appropriate W&I regime. And then that obviously maps through into the warranty protections that you're able to get under the sale and purchase agreement. I suppose another area that is similar that I've seen and been involved in um, recently in a, a number of transactions around the FinTech space. So again, you're looking at many cases in the FinTech area, it's a, a sort of a platform. Um, so I'm not, you know, obviously people will focus on Afterpay, massive transaction, but there are any number of other examples where we are effectively looking at an uptick in activity in FinTech. Part of that, in my view, relates to the extent to which you are looking at consumers having moved to a primarily digital way of, of sort of uh, engaging with their financial services providers. I mean, in, in some senses, Australia was already well ahead of the curve in that regard pre-COVID anyway. Um, we're also sort of seeing the fintechs that are effectively coming up with AI sort of functionality and sort of the ability to look at these large bank data sets and come up with correlations and hopefully causations around, you know, better product sets and, you know, greater efficiency gains and things like that. Um, and, and I suspect as well that in many cases, if you're looking at the investments into those fintechs, and in fact, actually, there was an Economist article about three weeks ago that was looking at this, and it, usually around the sort of the VC investment in fintechs been running somewhere between five to 10 billion annually um, over the past sort of, since about 2015 onwards, uh, 20, uh, 2020, 2021 so far has seen about a trebling of that in terms of the investment into fintech. I think part of that is also reflective of the maturity in the fintech area. Um, when you look at all the various techs, FinTech was one of the first kind of techs that sort of moved forward. Um, and there is a consumer base there. Um, and of course, a consumer base is far more than just a database. It is a knowledge base. It, it can be analysed. It can be critical in terms of working out opportunities, working out, as I mentioned before, efficiency gains. We're increasingly, when we're looking at the due diligence phase that Malika referred to, it's it's looking and interrogating in terms of well, what what rights do does a relevant target have in terms of the data that it sits on? What rights does it have to analyse? What rights does it have to commercialise? What rights does it have to sort of share some of those data feeds? How can it blend some of the data sets? If we're looking at alliance activity, is there opportunities of blending it, or are we effectively constrained by the range of the the sort of the outward facing? customer terms and conditions. And so, and what are the restrictions that are applied? And that then gets to be a, in some cases, a very, very complex matrix of rights, limitations, responsibilities to figure out, well, what actually do we have here of value sitting within this particular target? 
and, and often that is where you will find some cases it could be an investment with some form of alliance and or data sharing agreement as a precursor to some form of broader M&A activity. Um, but I guess just as sort of these digitization processes have given, so digitization can take it away in the form of regulatory, re regulatory reaction. Uh, and I don't certainly want to be the voice of doom and gloom because it's not a case of Newton's third law where it's talking about for every action there's an equal and opposite reaction, but it's certainly the case that there is a reactive mode now in terms of not only regulatory settings, both domestically, regionally, globally, but also in the way in which regulators are looking at the relevant tools that they have in their toolkit to implement appropriate um, balance between consumers in many cases and organisations and the way in which data is used. And just sort of turning to some of that, I think probably the, the big example of that in Australia would be the work that the ACCC has been doing over the last sort of probably about three or four years in particular. So many of you will remember the digital platforms inquiry that led to a whole range of recommendations, not all of which were limited to digital platforms, many of which would actually apply more generally across uh, the industry. And that's really interesting, one of which was a statutory right of action that would give individuals a right of privacy, a statutory right of privacy. And people would say, but we've already got the Privacy Act. And the problem with the Privacy Act, it doesn't actually, oddly enough, provide an individual the right to bring a claim. It gives the individual a right to complain and ultimately potentially have the Privacy Commissioner investigate. So it's, it's quite interesting, that differential approach. Um, but actually, even outside of what they were recommending on digital platforms, it's the enforcement approach that the ACCC has been taking using primarily misleading and deceptive conduct claims. So Section 18 of the Australian Consumer Law, looking at what organisations have said they would do in terms of privacy policies or other statements around how they would use information, looking at what they then have done and then going, well, hang on, you said you were going to do this. You've actually done this. That's misleading and deceptive. Um, and in that respect, the ACCC is in some, in many ways, following a, a path that had already been laid down by the Federal Trade Commission in the US, which had in many cases been a de facto privacy regulator in the United States because there's not a uniform uh, privacy, set in, uh, privacy set of rules in the US. So we kind of have in some cases the ACCC stepping in and becoming almost a de facto data regulator in Australia, in addition to having the more formal office of the Australian Information Commissioner. Um, outside of the, the sort of the, the ACCC approach, we've got the consumer data right, which exists already in the banking sector, the next industry or the sectors that will come through are energy and telecommunications. Basically, CDR is again a statutory regime that provides an individual the right to mandate and require the sharing of the, consu or the, data, the consumer's data from entity A to entity B. There's a principle of reciprocity, which I won't get into, but basically one of the issues has been that the CDR regime has had a slow uptake. Um, it started in, in banking, so it's a sector agnostic approach. It can apply to different sectors. At the moment, it applies in open banking. The big four are subject to CDR. There have been um, parliamentary committee inquiries and, and sort of investigations to figure out what can we do to sort of supercharge CDR. The uptake has been slow. But I think part of that comes back to what Thomas was saying before, it's need versus want. And at the moment, to be honest, in the time of COVID, when you're looking at financial security, 
I don't think many consumers would be looking at doing anything radical around who looks after their money and sort of looking at, at sort of, you know, incredible new products from an entity that no one really knows necessarily trust when it comes to something as fundamental as financial services. But CDR will sit there and I genuinely believe it is a lurking opportunity as well as it is a challenge for organisations going forward, particularly when we move out of it being sort of just sector limited and look at it sort of layered up into different sectors. Um, but I think it'll be a few years away yet before it really gets up and running and there's still a need to educate population around what CDR provides. <clears throat> Perhaps more directly around data, there is currently the Attorney General is undertaking a full review of the Privacy Act. Um, some would say not, um, not before time. Um, there was an interesting comment from one of the representatives in the Attorney General's um, team to a select committee on foreign interference, looking at what the review of the Privacy Act is. And really, and the quote was that it's a process of making sure that the current settings are appropriately calibrated and that there is the correct balance between protecting individuals' personal information and still ensuring that we can operate in a very digital economy. So what does that all mean in reality? I don't know, is the short point. I think though, if you took a step back, um, you looked at some of the other comments that were raised in that forum. There were, there were discussion around certain submissions that were querying the value of what we have in Australia, which is a consent-based approach to privacy regulation. It's all driven through your privacy policy that says, I consent to you doing these certain things. And in a world where even the Privacy Commissioner's own surveys show that around, I think it's high single digit individuals, so 9% was the last number I looked at, actually read a privacy policy you do question pretty quickly whether or not a consent model works in a world where you've got big data sets, artificial intelligence, the ability to analyze, look at correlations, is the consent model dead? Uh, that quote actually came from the former privacy commissioner about six or seven years ago um, when he was addressing uh, the issue of big data and his view at that point was there is a risk that the way big data was moving would absolutely lead to the consent model of privacy being dead what does that take us to? That takes you to something more like the GDPR, where consent is part of it, but it has to be based on effectively a lawful basis for processing information. So I think we'll see changes in the privacy regime that'll look at these settings and will also absolutely look at the, the punitive side as well, um, and perhaps set, reset some of those expectations. Um, and part of that will obviously be informed by what's happening internationally. So I mentioned the GDPR in terms of the way it's approaches. You've got the uh, California Consumer Privacy Act I mentioned before. And if you're a privacy person and want to be scared, go and have a look at the definition of personal information under the CCPA. Uh, it is incredibly broad uh, and intentionally incredibly broad. Uh, and, and, you know, I've had some people say, but Peter, the maximum fine under CCPA is only seven and a half thousand dollars. And it's like, yes, but that's for every single individual failure. So if you've got a million customers that are impacted, 7.5 billion. So that, that's where some of the challenges will feed. And I think we will, as part of this review, be looking at international comparatives. Um, there was also, I think, a few other areas that are that are sort of impacting, which are not strictly speaking related to personal information, but relate to data and in particular relate to cybersecurity settings as well in connection with protection of data. So critical infrastructure, there's a bill at the moment yet to see exactly the sector. Well, the sectors that actually are relevant to critical infrastructure could absolutely cross over into a number of consumer facing organisations. Um, the bill at the moment is going through a very lengthy consultation process. 
Um, the minister has said, it, in her view, and this Minister Andrews has said, it's a matter of urgency to get this particular bill passed. So I expect there will be a push soon. Hopefully there'll be a further um, exposure draft of that particular, or sort of a further bill draft of that coming through. And a bit more information on where that's heading. Um, and that sets a whole range of obligations and controls and frighteningly for many organisations, a risk that the government could take control of infrastructure. Um, quite how that works, I don't know. Outside of that, you've got the Department of Home Affairs There's a discussion paper at the moment around director's obligations with respect to cyber security. Uh, there's a private members bill that was raised around ransomware payments effectively having to be notified. Uh, Tim Wilson, who chairs a parliamentary or parliamentary economics committee actually raised whether there should be a ban on insurers reimbursing companies that pay ransomware payments. So we're looking at sort of at, at how to reset some of the issues on cybersecurity and in particular ransomware. Um, and then, you know, also uh, I saw recently potential enforceable, uh, uh, potentially an enforceable cyber code attached to the Privacy Act. So there's a lot happening in the space when it comes to data regulation. It remains in a state of flux and that to go to the heart of what Malika was referring to before, as much as you're looking at current regulatory settings and levels of compliance, if you're looking at investing or acquiring a target, a lot of it actually has to do with not only are they compliant now, but what is their approach to managing change in the short to medium to longer term, because inevitably there will be regulatory change there will be change as well that may not necessarily sit exactly in a regulatory setting, but could be, for example, things like guidance from different regulators that skews the way in which regulatory um, obligations are seen. So we're living in a state of flux. We'll continue being in a state of flux. Um, I'm hoping that there will be some greater clarity as we start to move beyond a lot of discussion and bills and exposure drafts and actually get some legislation um, happening. Um, but all of these things will increasingly challenge some of the behaviours that organisations have looked to deploy around their use of data. And I'll probably stop about there, um, Kristen, because obviously I'll keep on talking forever. <laughs> no, not you, PJ, never. Um, thank you very much. Um, and also for giving um, some sneak highlights into some of the topics for next week, which is Thursday. Beautiful segue for next Thursday session on, you know, the ACCCN data, which um, we mentioned. Um, so questions, we look forward to any um, questions. Um, if you haven't submitted any uh, so far, please feel free to do so. Um, a couple of questions so far. Um, so Thomas, you, you, you know, you mentioned around, um, you know, one of the trends is alliances and, and collaborations and how that's really important for companies to really grow and be successful. Do you see that trend, um, you know, continuing beyond the COVID situation? Is that very much a longer term trend for companies? I think the short answer is yes. Right. I mean, I think that if you go back to what Peter was talking about, CDR and, and, and what companies are trying to do at the end of the day, a lot of companies are extremely worried about the disintermediation. So, you know, from a B2C world, is Amazon going to capture the relationship? What we've seen with open banking in the UK, a lot of that stems the, the, an innate fear of, you know, will I lose my customer relationship? So the, the natural response to that is to try and say, how do I create more loyalty and more stickiness with the customers that I have? And that then becomes a factor of, and we know this almost across every single sector, the more products and the more touch points you have with any given company, 
the harder it is for you to change. So like banks, if you have your mortgage or credit card, you know, transaction account, harder for you to change than if you just have a transaction account. Same with a retailer, you know, the more touch points you have, the harder it is for you to change. Um, so by building out alliances and by building out joint ventures or partnerships or, you know, um, buying complementary assets, which can now be, by the way, complementary or help help deliver scale, all you're trying to do, is, like not all, but like a lot of it is actually, how do I avoid getting this intermediated by creating more loyalty, more stickiness, and being able to offer more to my customers to gain more of a share of their wallet and thereby by growing. Um, so that's at the heart of it, yes, if, if you look ahead and say, what do we think will happen as ecosystems, as platforms are winning, as, as kind of data becomes more free, the risk of disintermediation grows and therefore the response is gonna, gonna grow uh, at the same, in the same rate. And we're very much seeing that, you know, with the consumer sector companies over the last few years, that even pre-COVID, that, that trend towards community away from um, just a transactional buy and selling products and really expanding that out to your loyalty base, not just through the old um, fashion sort of loyalty programs, but a much broader sense of um, community and, um, you know, following, following them for the long term. Um, and do you see the main successes in this space um, for collaborations and alliances? Um, you, you touched on this for M&A, but, but looking more in the collaboration alliances space uh, as success for companies partnering with uh, other companies that are not sort of in that same space. Um, so they're not like-minded companies, they're not sort of following the same pursuit, but really sort of, you know, different, different tangents. Absolutely. I mean, I think if you start looking at what's happening across, you know, like take almost, I mean, pets, for example, like, I mean, Mars has invested significantly in building out an end-to-end ecosystem where it's all centered around animal health and animal wellness and, and, and all of that stuff, which includes vets, you know, um, apps, digital solutions, obviously pet food and so forth, right? And you see the same thing in insurance, right? If you look at, or, or financial services, if you look at what Ping An is doing coming out of Asia, right? Again, it's, it's all complementary services. It's very much around building that, like, if I get the customer inside my ecosystem, I don't actually need, like, I don't need to go anywhere else. And, and, and that's, that's predominant of what we see happening. That doesn't preclude partnerships or alliances to be about scale, because I think one of the things that is important to note from kind of the, what we saw during COVID is that it's the big companies that are winning. It's not the small, like, the, at least from a capital market perspective, if you deem that to be winning, but it's not the small retailer, it's the big ones because they have the money, they have the capital to invest and those are the ones driving driving a lot of the growth, right? So if you don't have scale, you also need to do, try and find a way of building some scale and building it fast. And that's where, again, alliances, partnerships and collaborations can be helpful. Yeah, very much and, and the M&A, yeah. Um, PJ, a question for you is around the regulatory change. Um, you, you mentioned a lot of um, different regulations and, um, you know, Australia loves loves to have lots of different areas. Um, to what extent is there sort of general coordination across those areas to avoid, I guess, either overlap um, or, um, or gaps in that space? Well, I think to be fair, there's probably, there is some but so if you look at something like the critical infrastructure um, bill that that obviously is is sitting across you know many sectors some of which have existing uh, regimes that will provide for a level of cybersecurity so financial services for example has cps 234 that deals with information risk and 
And the, the challenge there is that at the moment anyway, some of the earlier discussions from the department around the bill was to say, we know that there will be areas of overlap. We know that they will exist and we'll kind of sort them out. Uh, but quite where they will end up sorting those overlaps or those gaps out is yet to be confirmed. So, so would you then say, well, you rely on the financial services approach under CPS 234 using that as an example, or you could use the AEMA approach for energy? Or do you say, well, it's that and something else? And then if it's that and something else, you then have to go, well, you know, if, for example, financial services entities have built their systems around CPS 234, which many of them have, and it's not a light touch area of regulation. You then go, well, what else do we need to now do to comply with something else? And what do we do if ultimately there is inconsistency between what CPS 234 requires and then what, say, the critical infrastructure bill requires? So hopefully those things will all be sorted. But I think as well, inevitably, it's going to continue to be multiple different focuses because regulators or, or areas will be focusing on different things. So, <clears throat> excuse me, from a from a privacy perspective, it's obviously around personal information and control over personal information and data. Um, from the ACCC perspective, it's effectively protecting consumers. From, you know, if you're looking at an APRA, when they're looking at CPS 234, it's actually about the security of the financial system as opposed to the impact of cyber issues on individuals. So you're coming at these things from slightly different, or in some cases, quite different um, perspectives. So I think that will continue. Uh, but I have to say, um, I shouldn't really criticise or be, be, uh, be um, suggesting it's not a good thing because it's great for lawyers, but it would actually be nice if there was a little bit more of a consistency and a sort of a, uh, a, a sort of a single strategy and a drive around some of these, these areas. It may come, but I suspect we'll continue doing what we're doing at the moment. Thanks, Peter. Um, Malika, a question on M&A. Um, what's a, a top tip for um, consumer-facing companies looking to undertake M&A in the current environment? That's a good question, Kristen. Look, I think um, it's probably an obvious one, um, but it really ties into a lot of what was discussed today, which is to plan um, and have a very clear view of the why, you know, what's important about this business that I'm acquiring what am I valuing in this business? And the reason I say that is so that you can really drill into testing, you know, and doing due diligence around that. And, you know, that is, for example, if it's data, um, what's, you know, what's the framework around that data? Um, what's the compliance like? And to Peter's point, you know, how is this going to shift? And is it going to erode the value of this business as, you know, regulations change down the track? So I think a lot of it is plan early and understand what you're valuing and what's important so you can ask and focus on the right questions. I think getting organised around that. Um, and, you know, I'm an M&A lawyer, so it's always about the, deem, the deal timeframes and making sure that we're hitting all of the timeframes because um, there's nothing like losing momentum in a transaction. So I think it's about planning and trying to get input. So if you need FERB and you need to, you know, hit that process early on and really factoring all of that in early on into the process of planning and being organized really and understanding and being innovative around finding solutions whether that's exploring alliances or different consideration structures um, but planning up front 
Thanks so much. Um, look, given timing, we might leave it there. There are some other questions which we um, are happy to um, review and come back to you on. Um, just wanted to say a huge thanks um, to Thomas in particular for joining us um, from McKinsey today. It's um, always absolutely fabulous and a real treat for us to have you here and um, share your insights. So huge thanks to you. Um, Malika and PJ, thank you very much. I think we've all done very well not to have any interruptions from little E's, maths questions, puppies, etc. Um, and we've survived the hour. So I think we've uh, we've done well. Um, thank you everyone very much for joining. We hope that's been helpful. There will be a recording available um, and many thanks for joining us. If there are any other questions, please feel free to send them through. Um, and the next session, as we've mentioned, is competition and data next Thursday, 19 August at 10.30 a.m. So thanks all very much and have a good rest of day.